What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Car Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm your host, Scott Benjamin, and um, we are back after about a year and a half off, and Man, what a year and a half it's been, and there is, uh, there's been a lot of changes around here, <laughs> and uh, I will let you know right now that um, it is just me. I'm kind of uh, running this thing solo at this point. Ben will not be joining me in the studio today, but I assure you that Ben is still around. Uh, we are not in a fight. We are not, <laughs> we're not angry with one another or anything like that, and uh, Ben would love to be here, but um, he has other obligations that keep him from doing this show at this point, and, uh, and completely understandable if you know what Ben's been up to in the last year and a half or so. Uh, we've both been very busy, and I am happy to be back and doing the Car Stuff show again. Uh, but again, it's going to take a little bit of adjustment on my part doing this uh, solo. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm accustomed to having Ben to be able to kind of bounce things off of and, and you know, have a, a decent conversation back and forth with him. Uh, so bear with me a little bit as we kind of get our feet underneath us here as we start out this, this show again. Um, again, I'm really, really excited to be back, and I hope that you uh, appreciate that we're back, and I, and I hope that you find just as much enjoyment out of the show as, uh, as I get in making it for you. I really enjoy talking to you, and I enjoy this show so much and the and the topics, and uh, I want to just carry that forward. I want to continue on with the uh, the car stuff tradition, and in fact, if you're brand new to the show, take a look at our website. We are on carstuffshow.com, and take a look back at our archives. We've got a good, oh gosh, I want to say almost 900 episodes. You know, Ben and I did this for a long, long time together. We've uh, been recording since about 2008. We gave it up about a year and a half ago. And we've got this incredible archive of material that is just a little bit of everything. It's not just cars. It's not just trucks. It's not just trains, automobiles. It's uh, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, we, we talk about Shriner cars and hearses and, and circus trains and um, just all kinds of stuff. So, um, you know, the people that are involved in, in going fast, you know, with, uh, with, with automotive racing and uh, just it, it's a fun show. 
take a look back at our archives. I think literally everybody can find something that they like in our archives. I, I promise you. And going forward, I want to continue that. All right, so I want to get started here, I guess restarted back into the show with uh, with a topic that we have touched on in the past, and it is a, a, a unique car. It's a, it's a Canadian car, of all things. A Canadian, I guess I'll call it a supercar, maybe. I, it was really short-lived. It was not, not quite a kit car, but it has kind of that look to it. It's the Bricklin SV1. Now, Bricklin is a man's name, Malcolm Bricklin, and... Uh, the SV1 stands for Safety Vehicle One, and we'll talk all about you know why why they decided to call it that, and you know the the importance of uh, of safety in the design of this vehicle, the overall design. Um, I have seen exactly one Bricklin SV1 in person in my life, and that's it. And it was in a museum, and this happened to be back in I would say the early 1980s. And, you know, my family lives in Indiana and we had lived in Michigan for a long time. So, you know, driving back and forth in the very northern part of Indiana is Auburn, Indiana. And there is a museum there called the Auburn Cord Duesenberg Museum. It is in the factory where they produce the Auburn Cord Duesenberg cars. And, of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, antique automobiles there and, you know, some machinery from the original factory. It's just a, it's a really fascinating building to tour through. And uh, as we're walking through... Uh, there's some other cars there that were, you know, donated by other people or, you know, possessions of the museum. And as we get through, you know, uh, some of the, the more classic cars and, and you know, the the, uh, the Auburn Corps Duesenbergs, we come around a corner and there's this really unusual looking vehicle there and it's bright orange. And it looked very futuristic. You know, of course, it was very angular and, and uh, strange looking. Had the doors open, I believe, you know, these, these amazing gullwing doors that we're going to talk about in a moment. But it was a Bricklin SV1, and it was in safety orange, and uh, it's just always left an impression on me as far as uh, the design of the thing, and then the idea behind, you know, why it came to be. Like, why was this vehicle ever built in the first place? And there's a there's a really good story behind it, and a fascinating character, an American entrepreneur. His name was uh, Malcolm Bricklin. Um, we're going to talk about some uh, some interesting. Side notes about the Bricklin because there were some other kind of crazy things that happened around it that don't normally happen with other automobiles, like some special releases, and I'll, and I'll tell you about those too. We're going to talk about some production of this vehicle, the competition for the vehicle at the time, you know, like you know what it was kind of paired up against and what it was all about. Malcolm Bricklin was responsible for several... Uh, companies that brought automobiles to the United States. Now, he's a, an entrepreneur that has his hands in more things than you can imagine and probably uh, some stuff that is very familiar to you, but you might not even know it. And we'll get to Malcolm's story in just a moment. But I want to tell you that, you know, the, the production of the car, you know, the, I guess maybe the, uh, the general specs of the car. Um, production years were from 1974 until 1975. So really only two years of production. And there were truly only two model years produced, although there were a very few cars that were built in 1976, just kind of built with leftover parts. So, you know, I'm not giving anything away to say that, the, you know, the company's no longer around. And once it went defunct, uh, there were some parts left behind the factory. And we've heard this with many other automobiles that were you know, highly desired, you know, that there were, there were some cars that were on the assembly line, just weren't finished. 
Uh, there were parts left behind, enough to put together a couple of cars, and that's kind of what they did for 1976. But for the most part, these are 1974, 1975 models with, again, a few 1976 cars built. There were three transmission options. There was a three-speed torque command automatic, which was available in 1974, and that was the only year that that three-speed torque command automatic was available. Then there was a manual trans that was only in the first-year cars. It was only available in the 1974 cars. It was a four-speed BorgWarner T10 manual transmission. And then there was also, in 1975, another three-speed automatic, which was available with the FMX transmission. So, um, again, the the manual trans was only available in the first-year cars, and that adds, I believe it adds about 1500 bucks if you have one right now. So, um, that is a, a, a sought-after option on the existing cars. Um it was a little bit heavy. Um, it was around 3,520 pounds, so fairly heavy for the, you know, considering that it had a fiberglass body, even the doors themselves. I mean, we, we, we'll we talk about these gullwing doors a little bit more, but um, the gullwing doors themselves, I think they, they each weighed like 100 pounds or something. So there were a couple of designers of the car. Now, now Malcolm didn't necessarily design the car. He had a lot of the ideas behind the car, but the designers were named uh, Marshall Hobart and Herb Grass. Now, Herb Grass... Uh, passed away in 2010, but you may recognize his name, may or may not. I'm not sure how familiar you are with with uh, automobile designers, but he worked with George Barris on the original Batmobile and several other vehicles that were considered, you know, show or movie cars. So um, he also, I think there was a tie-in to Bruce Myers and the Myers Manx, uh, which was the original Doom Buggy design. So, you know, there's some, uh, some, some decent heritage that goes into this as far as, you know, the designers go. Similar to the uh, the Corvette of the day, the Chevy Corvette of the day, the layout of this car was a, was a front engine, rear-wheel drive layout. So it had a V8 engine, which I think was originally supposed to be a four-cylinder engine. According to Malcolm's spec, uh, specifications, he wanted a four-cylinder engine, so it was very fuel efficient. But uh, believe it or not, I mean, when you look at the, uh, hood, the hood of this thing, it's so sloped and so angular that you wouldn't think to be able to fit a V8 under the hood, but uh, they actually were. So very similar to the Corvette of the day because it was a, a fiberglass body car as well, a uh, sports car, uh, but it, it had a couple of different options. There was a 360 cubic inch vin- engine that was available from AMC. Again, that's a V8, and that was in 1974. And then from 1975 to 1976, you could get a 351 Ford Windsor engine, which was a significant, you know, significant upgrade, I guess, from the four-cylinder that they originally thought. And I think the uh, the prototype originally came out with, I want to say it was a Chrysler Slant 6 or something like that. So, um, you know, this, this car went from a four-cylinder to a six-cylinder all the way up to an eight-cylinder. And the performance of the day, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it eventually, but I think it was very, very similar in performance as well to the Corvette. So, Kind of an interesting vehicle. I mean, it was uh, definitely a sports car. Again, fiberglass body, which we'll talk about because there were some problems with uh, the production of that fiberglass body. It was created using a vacuum forming process with color impregnated acrylic, which is bonded to those fiberglass body panels. Now, the colors of the vehicle, um, there were there were only five colors available. And again, those were uh, these color impregnated acrylic. And uh, the colors that were available were, uh, again, these are all safety colors. So uh, they always say safety ahead of, t- ahead of them. So it's safety white and safety orange, um, safety suntan, safety red, and safety green. And those were the only colors that you could get the Bricklin in. And uh, they were built, and this is a, a bit strange. This is um, 
a little bit out of the ordinary. They were built in St. John, New Brunswick in Canada. Now, that is east of the state of Maine on the Bay of Fundy, if you're trying to find uh, St. John, New Brunswick on the map. But again, a Canadian car, uh, there were there were some Canadian cars in, in, the his, in history, of course, not many. Uh, this is one of them, and it didn't last very long. The New Brunswick Premier, his name was Richard Hatfield. Uh, he was the uh, the Canadian provincial government, uh, part of the Canadian provincial government, and they provided uh, financing for this car for about $4.5 million to fund this Brickland car. And there's a, a tie-in to the United States that uh, is going to lead to, eventually, to the downfall of this whole thing. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. We're still talking about a, uh, a fairly heavy vehicle. Um, again, I, I mentioned that these cars were built in St. John in the province of, uh, of New Brunswick, um, but a, a company called General Vehicle, which was incorporated in Scottsdale, Arizona, kind of controlled it, and another design group in Livonia, Michigan. That is going to lead to just a little bit of a problem for the company in the near future because um, the problem was Bricklin was using some of that, uh, some of that money uh, to go, and this is all going to come out a little bit later, but uh, Bricklin was using some of that money to fund uh, some of the engineering and development of the car, and as well as the salaries and operations in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, which is a, a bit of a conflict of interest, I guess, for the uh, for the Canadian government to, to be funding something that is actually taking place um, in Arizona here in the United States. I do want to talk about Malcolm Bricklin. 
and uh, and who he was, and some some of the uh, interesting things that he was responsible for. So you get an idea of the uh, of the person behind this vehicle and, and kind of why it came to be. Now he's in uh, Malcolm Bricklin. He was born on March 9th, nineteen thirty nine. He is still around. He's about uh, I want he's eighty years old at this point, I guess. Um, he was uh, he was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he's an American businessman. And the way he's described is that he's kind of an unorthodox businessman. He spent more than six decades with uh, with <laughs> numerous prominent uh, failures and successes along the way. I guess this guy is responsible for over 30 companies. Um, he's primarily involved in manufacturing and importing automobiles into the United States. But again, these 30 companies among them are some, some very interesting ones that I have a feeling that you have heard of in the past. Now, um, of course, Bricklin, we'll talk about that. And, and you know, the Bricklin Motor Company, um, Malcolm Bricklin actually sees that as a bit of a success. And, and you know, I, I understand exactly what he's saying. I mean, a lot of times you have to fail in order to understand how to move forward. And I think that's exactly what he's saying here. Now, Malcolm Bricklin kind of started his career back when he was about age 19, so a long, long time ago. His father owned a, uh, a building supply business back in Orlando, Florida, and uh, and Malcolm took the opportunity to franchise uh, these these businesses and and uh, and grew you know grew the, the business, but eventually uh, there were dozens of lawsuits and judgments against him, and uh, you know I think the chain eventually fired, filed bankruptcy. But again, that's just one of the uh, the stumbling blocks along the way. But you know he already had. Kind Kind of this, uh, the, the fever, the idea that he was going to, uh, you know, become something successful in the business world. Now, one of the first uh, businesses that I think you'll you'll find that you recognize that Malcolm Bricklin is responsible for bringing to the United States is the brand Subaru. He brought the brand Subaru to the United States. That's the this is the guy that's responsible for it. Um, you know, after he sold his interest in you know the handyman business, Handyman America, he moved back to Philadelphia and he was kind of exploring this idea of. Um, working with a network of gas stations to rent scooters and, you know, the idea that, you know, people can get around town in a much more affordable way than, you know, some of the big gas guzzling cars that uh, we were using during that time. And so he goes to Japan to meet with a manufacturer of the Rabbit Scooter, which was uh, Fuji Heavy Industries. And, you know, talking to them about the importation of the scooters. And this is right when Fuji was just getting out of manufacturing scooters and, and starting to concentrate on an automotive business. And, Bricklin sees the Subaru 360 Mini Car at that point. Now, the, the 360 Mini Car is a car that got up to 60 miles per gallon on gas. And it was, of course, it, it did not have uh, the, the federal requirements to be sold here in the United States at that time. But it did, however, weigh under 1,000 pounds. This car, if you haven't ever seen a, a Subaru 360, it's a car that they built from 1958 to 1971. And it was a rear-engine city car, and it weighed around right around 900 pounds. And it was built to comply to Japan's K-car reg- uh, regulations. Now that's K K E I. They're still, you know, they're still making K cars. Uh, you know, again, K E I cars. I think that you know the requirements have changed dramatically from about what 1949 up until present day. Uh, there's minimum requirements for, or maximum requirements rather, for you know height, width, length. Um, you know, CCs, you know, power output, that type of thing. There's lots of requirements to them, the power output. Um, Suzuki, Mazda, Honda, Subaru, they all make cars like this. But again, this is a, a very, very small car that Fuji Industries was building at the time and, uh, and making these, these Subaru cars. 
And Bricklin saw a an option here. He said, some, you know, he saw something that was a, a possibility for the United States. And so he began to bring Subarus into the U.S. that were then, you know, they, they were compliant um, or didn't have to be compliant, rather, because they were still under that 1,000 pounds. Uh, but he was able to bring in these cars. And the first Subarus to enter the U.S. were from be- between 1968 and 1969. Again, these are publicly traded companies then. And, uh, you know, it just became, well, as you know, I mean, Subaru is still around, highly successful here in the United States. And again, Malcolm Bricklin is the one who brought these uh, into the United States. He was the one responsible for it. Another company that he brought into the United States was something called, uh, this one you might not be familiar with. It's named Fast Track, F-A-S. T-R-A-C. It's all one word. And in 1971, he created this franchise called Fast Track, which combined, of all things, this is strange, RV sales uh, with shopping center parking lot race courses, where the public could then take, you know, one of those Subaru um, 360s, you know, there, there were about 900 of them, I think, that he he had that were unsold uh, in 1971. And you could actually race these on these parking lot race courses. And again, it's combined with RV sales. And they, these cars, and here's the tie-in again with Bruce uh, Bruce Myers from uh, Myers Manx, the Doom of Doom Buggy fame. Uh, they were modified by him, so you know, a little bit a uh, little bit hopped up, a little bit souped up for these uh, for these parking lot race courses, which I think is fascinating. I'd love to find some old uh, film of this, you know, this happening. Even even photographs would be really cool, but I want to tell you also about a couple of other things that he was involved in. Um, the International Automobile Importers, which is um, this is after Fiat had left the United States market, market and um, he moved to import in 1982 the import of um, the Fiat X19 as well as the 2000 Roadster. He renamed them, of course, the Bertone and the Pina Ferreira. This is uh, very interesting because, you know, again, it's a it's a car that has left the United States. He decides to bring them back, and uh, and actually they were quite successful. I mean, I, I would think that a lot of people have seen, you know, Fiat X not, X19s on the road, if, if nothing else, you know, at a cars and caffeine event, you know, at some, somewhere. And here's another one that is probably one that you've heard of, I would think. I would hope so. And one that we've done a show on here in the past on car stuff. Yeah, Malcolm was responsible for bringing the Yugo here. And this is happening right in the early 1980s, so about 10 years after the Bricklin. Uh, around 1984, which was when the entire Yugoslav car industry produced around, um, I think they produced about a quarter of a million cars. About 60,000, it's roughly about 60,000 of those cars were exported. And Bricklin decided that he was going to meet with the company that, that created these cars, uh, the Stava, I think is the name. And, and uh, he and the engineers that, you know, that worked with him and along with, you know, other people of, of note, um, Henry Kissinger, uh, former U.S. Secretary of State, um, he and uh, several other people, you know, these global executives get together and they create um, a vehicle that is, of course, regulated for the United States, allowed to be imported to the United States. And he and his engineers suggest... Get this: six hundred changes to the uh, the car made for the U.S. market, which included a one point one liter four cylinder engine. Uh, there were improvements to the anti pollution system. There were some comfort adjustments, safety devices. Of course, there's a special carburetor for you know lead free gasoline that we used here in the United States at the time. Um, uh, the, you know, just incredible. So the Yugo that the U.S. received, believe it or not, I mean, as much as everybody groans about the Yugo and and how awful the car was, and, and truly, the car was pretty awful. Um, there were 600 changes that were made to the car that came to the U.S. market. So it was actually a much improved vehicle over what they got in other markets compared to what we had here. Um, now, uh, 
believe it again, I keep saying believe it or not, because it's really hard to believe that all this happened. But the Yugo at the time was the fastest selling car ever in the United States that was imported from Europe. There were 163,000 units sold in just three years. And uh, it was actually the least expensive new car sold in the United States. And I would guess that that is why so many of them sold, really. Later, you know, he's still he's still going here, folks. And Malcolm Bricklin is involved in so many things. He was involved in early electric vehicles. I mean, we're talking in the 1990s. So he formed a partnership with a guy, another guy named Malcolm, uh, Dr. Malcolm Curie. Now, Curie was the former chairman and CEO for Hughes Aircraft, GM Delco, and the former undersecretary of defense for uh, research and engineering. And the idea was that, you know, they're trying to win people over to the idea of um, electric cars, but they're going to start small. They're going to start with electric bikes. Now, this is, again, in 1990. So uh, we're talking about pretty early design electric bikes. It's not anything like what we see today. Uh, initially, they were built using these these custom aluminum mountain bike frames um, that were made from a company named Zimark Corporation in Malaysia. And they achieved about 15 to 20 miles per hour, depending on the size of the rider. And they had a, a range of about 17 miles before it needed to charge. I believe these had the old, um, yeah, they, they did. They had two rechargeable sealed 12-volt lead-acid batteries. So this is the uh, the heavy car batteries that we think of all the time. And these were, I, I believe they can, they it straddled the rear wheel. So it was kind of a big box that was the uh, the power unit for this whole thing. Um, they, had, they did have some advanced technology for the time. They had halogen headlights. They had LED taillights and brake lights. Um, they had a wireless security remote fob, which I find kind of interesting. Uh, they had LED turn signals and mirrors, and they had uh, you know front disc brake. They were pretty advanced for the time, uh, again, in 1990. But the idea didn't really take off because in 1990, they were selling these bikes for something like, you know, the re- uh, suggested retail price was around 1400 up to $1,900, depending on the options that you uh, that you wanted on these bikes. So these uh, these electric bicycle companies, or this this one in particular, folded. However, it was called. It was actually called the Electric Bicycle Company. Was purchased by a guy named Lee Iacocca. Now, Lee Iacocca was the man who um, was, I, I guess, given the credit for saving Chrysler Corporation back in the 1980s. So he uh, he saw some interest in this. He decided that you know maybe there's something to these electric bikes. And Lee Iacocca, who I believe. Uh, you know, the company still uh, no longer exists, but I, I don't know if the company is still owned by him, but um, the company was then later renamed EV Global. And uh, I, I, I think it just kind of dissolved, kind of just went it went nowhere. But uh, interesting that, you know, Lee Iacocca ends up tied up in this in this whole electric bicycle thing with with Malcolm Bricklin. You know, I'm talking a mile a minute right now about the Bricklin because I'm I'm really excited about it and and you know the guy that brought it here and everything and you know it's just a fascinating history. But uh, before we end this whole thing, I've got about three more points that I want to bring up. But before we get any farther, let's take a word from our sponsor. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. 
it's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The debut of the new car happened around 1974, and there was a couple of there were a couple of debuts uh, for this thing. Uh, one was uh, when it was actually presented to a gathering of celebrities and potential dealers. And this was at the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, in, in February of 1974. And then there was an official unveiling of the car that took place at the Four Seasons Restaurant in New York, also in 1974, in June. So a little bit later in that year. But again, revealed to celebrities first and potential dealers uh, before anything. And of course, the uh, the automobile magazines got their hands on this thing at some point, and they found that the performance of the Bricklin was found to be just about comparable to the contemporary Corvette, as we talked about before, which was really the only other two-seat V8, uh, you know, um, fiberglass body, however many modifiers you want to put in here, <laughs> cars that were put together. And I do have the uh, MSRP numbers for you now. It was very, very close to the MSRP of the Corvette of the day, which I believe was right around, uh, I think it was just a little bit more than $6,000 for uh, the 1974, 1975 Corvette. So somewhere in the $6,000 range. So it was a little bit more, priced a little bit more, but again, performance was just about the same. Uh, there were, I think, I want to say, we, we said it just about 3,000 cars were produced. It's actually closer to uh 2,800. There was about 2,854, if you want to be exact, uh, you know, vehicles produced. Um, most of those um, had the, the Ford 351 V8. Um, and again, only that first year offered a four-speed manual transmission. So if you've got one with that, that's, that's a, a factory option that makes it quite a bit more valuable. And in fact, it, it does add $1,500. If, if you've got one that's in excellent condition, it's worth, according to Haggerty, it's worth about $24,000 these days. So um, hang on to that one. I guess that one in that factory, the one that I saw, if it is in concourse condition, which means perfect condition, you know, ready for show, Around $35,000 is what you can get for one of these. But um, most of them, I would bet, are in the uh, fair or or less than that, less than fair condition, which puts them right around about $7,000. Again, right about what they cost brand new back in 1974. 
there were some interesting uh, features, I guess, that uh, that distinguished the uh, the SV1 from many many other cars today. Of course, it had this you know radical design. I mean, it looked like a, a sports car, that had a supercar, really of the day, and, and very similar to the Corvette, I guess, in, in shape and size. Essentially, you know, Bricklin, Malcolm Bricklin, got most of his ideas put into this vehicle, you know, the, the idea that it was going to be a safety vehicle. So again, SV stands for safety vehicle, and he applies these standards, you know, far ahead of, of the U.S. regulations. So he did things like, you know, he had large urethane bumpers, you know, these uh, these energy-absorbing bumpers, you know, crash protection, crash protection standards. Um, he, he did things like he, he put in a, a tubular steel perimeter frame. He had a, a roll cage. Uh, built right within the frame of the vehicle, the chassis, which was capable capable of withstanding you know high velocity impact without deformation. So you know that was something that was kind of advanced for the day. Uh, you know, of course, it had you know the gullwing doors, which I don't know if really were safety or more of design, but um, you know, interesting idea behind the whole thing. Um, one other thing is that. You know, the car didn't include any cigarette lighter or ashtray because Bricklin thought that smoking while driving was unsafe. It was a distraction. So kind of an early safety idea. And think about the cars of that day, you know, like the early 1970s. I have, I, I had a car that was a 1967 Chrysler Newport and there was literally an ashtray in every armrest. There was, you know, an ashtray for six people in that car, uh, for every one of them. And, and of course, cigarette lighters, you know, <laughs> as well. Um, it, it was just a common feature found in cars. And a lot of people would even add, you know, these uh, these add-on ashtrays. You could buy them at, you know, auto parts stores that had uh, bean bags kind of affixed to the bottom that you could put in the seat in between if you needed, one, you know, another ashtray. So it was just a very common feature at the time, and he just did not include it. Um, again, I'm excited about the Brooklyn. I'm excited about being back. I'm excited about all this. So uh, so I'll, I'll quickly go through these and, and we'll move on and we can get to our next topic. But um, I want to tell you about three, what I find very interesting facts about the Brooklyn or the Brooklyn history. And one is that um, there were a series that commem- uh, commemorated the historic land vehicles in Canada, and they issued a Brooklyn stamp on July or June eighth, nineteen ninety six, and it had a face, a face value of forty five cents. It's kind of an you know, item of interest. It's not often that an automobile is featured on a stamp. I know it's happened in the past, but um, it's not it's not all that common. And uh, you know, especially one that really was only around for a couple of years. So Canadians obviously have quite a bit of pride in this vehicle, even though it was a, it was very short lived, um, and rightfully so. It's an interesting car. There's so much really of interest in this, and, and I hope that it's really just kind of the tip of the iceberg and that you'll go out and search it and, and really dig into this. But um, the thing that I find one of the most fascinating is that there was a mini Bricklin um, th- that was launched right in the middle of production. And uh, there were not many of these produced. And when I say mini Bricklin, I mean a go-kart Bricklin that you could buy. And you could only you were only offered one of these if you were a, were a Bricklin owner. If you had a Bricklin car, you were given this uh, this opportunity to purchase one of these. And I'm holding in my hand uh, the document, the um, I guess the uh, the press notice that says, "Dear Bricklin owners, FW and Associates Inc., which is uh, a company that was uh, a builder of these mini automobiles, they built a lot of different uh, small go karts. So FW and Associates Inc., the world's largest builder of mini cars, has arranged to build a limited edition mini Bricklin." that will carry uh, my personalized signature and the serial number that will match the present Bricklin that you own. So you could get this car with a plaque attached that had Malcolm Bricklin's signature, and it matched the serial number for the very Bricklin 
that you bought from the Brooklyn Car Company, which I think is really cool. So you get this in the same color, you know, that you had your car, and it would just be a mini version, or it could be a different color if you wanted, I guess. Uh, But you could get it in, again, the safety colors, white, orange, suntan, red, or green. And there's a photo here of a mini Brooklyn parked next to a full-size Brooklyn. And the cost of of this thing... Again, this is 1978. The cost to owners was $555, and they they would ship anywhere in the continental USA. Um, They were powered by a a three... Uh, yeah, three-horsepower Briggs & Stratton engine. So it wasn't like a super strong car, but it had this really cool-looking go-kart body on top of it that looked just like your full-size Bricklin that you had in your garage, potentially. And the, here's the thing. Not many Bricklin owners took them up on this opportunity, uh, but around 47 to 49 examples of these are known to exist. And those are, I think those are the only ones that were sold, not, not that there are that many left out there. Uh, so if you happen to come across one of these and... Uh, you know, you want to uh, you want to part with your uh, or you want to uh, purchase a mini Bricklin, and you find someone that does want to part with one. Uh, you know, it's going to have the VIN number from someone else's car, but uh, you know, so be it. Um, there was a problem with these, and the problem was that they were having a hard time during the manufacturing. Uh, they found that the acrylic resin. Uh, that they first selected would blister at temperatures as low as 150 degrees, which is about 65.6 degrees Celsius. Now, you might think, okay, that's a pretty high temperature, but, you know, what if you own one of these and you're in a, um, a, you know, a hot environment like here in Atlanta or anywhere where, uh, you know, the temperatures get up to about 100 degrees ambient temperature, you know that the surface of that temperature is going to become much, much hotter than that. And we've seen problems similar with uh, with with plastic trim on cars, you know, that warp and fade and all that. Well, the problem with this was that the um, the resin, um, which was able to withstand a higher temperature, was thinner than the original product, I guess, and it required an extra layer of fiberglass, um, which also increased the weight, and, and Bricklin had to revert to this original resin. So um, they also discovered that this ultraviolet, uh, that ultraviolet light would pass through the acrylic layer, which degraded the polyester resins that were underneath. So um, you know, those that were used to bond the acrylic to the fiberglass below. So they had to really bring it, well, they actually had to bring in an expert in order to figure this out. And they brought in a guy, a polymer expert uh, from McMaster University in Hamilton. And he was able to figure out that um, there was a, a lack of adhesion between the acrylic layer and the fiberglass. And this is a problem with all the early production, actually all of the production uh, Bricklands, and they, they got it figured out a little bit. I mean, there was still a problem, but um, according to people that were inside the company, as many as as much as 60% of the acrylic used in the first few months of production uh, was lost due to failures during the pressing and bonding stage, and another 10% was lost due to damage uh, during shipments of the parts from, you know, the, the plant, um, uh, they had a, a body plant and then they had a production plant. And, and even in the shipping between the plants, uh, they lost, again, another 10% in, due to damage. Um, they had an integrity test. And this test, <laughs> this is uh, something, right? So think about this. Uh, happening in manufacturing today, you just wouldn't see it. But uh, Malcolm Bricklin's father, his name was Albert Bricklin, actually thought of an idea of how to test the parts for integrity. And the idea, believe it or not, was uh, to strike each part that came out of the press with a seven-pound hammer. And if the part didn't delineate, 
it, or delaminate rather, it was passed. So each part of the, each body panel of these things was struck with a seven pound hammer in order to determine if it, uh, if it was up to standard. And um, until an acceptable bonding method was found, I think in 1975, they said, or, or prior to that, uh, the losses continued to be around 15 or 25 product, uh, percent rather of all the parts produced. So uh, man, what an expensive operation this was just to get the body panels together. Um, you know, uh, the Brickland Motor Company, Malcolm Brickland actually sees that as a bit of a success. And he says that uh, one of his quotes here is that the things that people see as failures are often the steps to success. I, I got my fame and power from the failure of the Brickland. Again, I, uh, I encourage you to look into the Brickland itself, look into Malcolm Brickland and, uh, and find out what this guy was all about. It's, it's interesting, you know, whether you agree with what he's done or, or you don't, um, either way, I think you're going to find that he's a fascinating character as, as most of the people that we cover in car stuff have been over the years. I, I hope so anyways. Um, you know what, folks, I think that about wraps it up for today. I've got more notes here than I could ever possibly read. And uh, I've tried to fit as much in as I possibly could. But, uh, you know, for the first uh, first go around again on my uh, on my second round here, my second wind, I think we're doing all right. And, uh, you know, we're still available online. You know, we've got all our social uh, social media hookups. So we are Car Stuff HFW on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to go to our website, which is, uh, you know, I, I recommend you do that because that's where you can find, you know, all of our stuff, you know, the previous episodes from 2008 forward up until, uh, you know, what was it, I guess, about 2017 and then starting again today. Uh, you can go to carstuffshow.com and you can find everything that you want there, anything. It's all searchable. Um, hopefully you'll enjoy something that you find there. I, I know you will. And again, I just want to extend a, a thank you to everyone that has come back to listen to us and uh, and new listeners as well. I'm, I'm really excited about this new venture and uh, looking forward to many, many more episodes with you. Thanks again. Car Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. Right, let's go. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. <laughs> you can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Oh, oh, oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.